welcome to Essence's podcast series, Essence Critical Insights. My name is Julia Malkina. I'm a partner in Essence's litigation group and co-lead of the firm's securities litigation practice. I'm here today with my litigation partners, Jeff Scott, co-lead of Essence's securities litigation practice, and Steve Pekin, lead of the firm's securities and commodities investigations and enforcement practice. We have a number of topics to cover today on the latest developments in private securities litigation. Jeff, why don't we talk first about the numerical trends during 2021? Thanks, Julia. As you know, securities class action filings slowed in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We saw this trend actually accelerate in 2021, driven by lower levels of M&A-related litigation and core federal Section 10B actions without Section 11 allegations. Those two categories were down 82% and 17%, respectively. In 2021, plaintiffs filed 218 securities class actions in federal and state courts. And that number is substantially down from 2020, where it was at 333. Of the 218 filings in 2021, 200 were what we call core filings, that is filings that were not M&A related compared to 218 core filings in 2020. There were only 41 core filings against non-issuers in 2021 which was a reversion to the 2012 through 2019 levels after we hit an all-time high in 2020. Julia, we also continue to see an uptick in securities class actions involving SPACs, which is consistent with a surge in SPAC transactions in 2021. Last year, there were 33 SPAC-related securities class action filings, all of which, save one, alleged violations of Section 10B of the Exchange Act. This was a six-fold increase from five actions in 2020 to 32 in 2021. Notably, 11 of these 33 filings were related to the auto industry. The landscape of securities litigation in the SPAC context is still developing. Thus far, a common allegation in SPAC-related litigation is a claim that the defendant misrepresented the product viability or business prospects of the SPAC target prior to the merger. We expect this trend to continue. Turning specifically to state court actions, plaintiffs are choosing to bring fewer Securities Act filings in state court. In the first half of 2021, there were only five such filings, all of them in New York state court. Instead, the plaintiff's bar is favoring federal courts, with federal-only filings making up 43% of all Securities Act filings, up from 21% between 2018 and 2019. One likely factor contributing to the reduced state court activity is Delaware Supreme Court's ruling in Salzburg v. Schiabucci in March of 2020, which held that federal forum provisions in corporate governing documents are enforceable as a matter of Delaware law, as well as a series of California cases enforcing such provisions under California law. This seems to have slowed the rise in state court litigation that we observed beginning in 2018, after the Supreme Court's decision in Cyan cleared the way for Securities Act claims in state courts. Julia, before we talk about those developments in state court litigation, let's turn to what I think is the most important securities case of 2021. The U.S. Supreme Court decided Goldman Sachs Group 
Inc. versus Arkansas Teacher Retirement System in June of last year. The case involved a securities class action against Goldman Sachs and its former senior officers who were represented by Sullivan and Cromwell. The Supreme Court considered two issues. First, whether a defendant in a securities class action may rebut the basic presumption of class-wide reliance by pointing to the generic nature of the alleged misstatements and showing that the statements had no price impact. And second, whether a defendant seeking to rebut the basic presumption has only a burden of production or also the ultimate burden of persuasion. Julia, you were an important member of the team that represented the Goldman Sachs defendants in that case. What can you tell us about the Supreme Court's judgment? Thanks, Jeff. In a nutshell, the Supreme Court agreed with Goldman Sachs that the Second Circuit should have considered the generic nature of Goldman Sachs's alleged misstatements in determining whether those statements impacted the price of Goldman Sachs's stock. First, the Supreme Court held the generic nature of a challenge statement often is important evidence of price impact that courts should consider at class certification, even if such evidence overlaps with materiality or any other merits issue. The generic nature of a statement is particularly important in cases where plaintiffs rely on an inflation maintenance theory to argue that the statements maintained an artificially inflated stock price, even though they did not increase the stock price when made. The court noted that where there is a mismatch between a generic challenge statement and a specific corrective disclosure, the assumptions behind the inflation maintenance theory break down and provide a court with less reason to infer price impact. Second, the Supreme Court held that defendants bear the burden of persuasion and must establish a lack of price impact by a preponderance of the evidence. The court added that the allocation of the burden is unlikely to have much difference on the ground because it will only have bite when the evidence is an equipoise, which it said was a situation that should rarely arise. The decision provides an important clarification of the standards for rebutting price impact at class certification. And by requiring a match between the legend misstatements and the claimed corrective disclosures, the Supreme Court placed a significant limitation on the inflation maintenance theory in securities fraud cases. The Supreme Court vacated the Second Circuit's decision affirming class certification and remanded the case for further proceedings consistent with its opinion. Afterward, the parties submitted additional briefing to the district court, and on December 8th, the district court recertified a class. Goldman Sachs recently filed a Rule 23-F petition to reverse class certification and several amicus briefs supporting Goldman Sachs' petition also have been submitted to the Second Circuit. A decision on the petition is pending. Julia, let's discuss two important developments in state court litigation since the Delaware Supreme Court's Schiabacci decision last year. First, since Schiabacci, other state courts have also enforced federal form provisions under their respective state laws. In late 2020, several California trial courts upheld federal form provisions, and notably, following those decisions, no Securities Act claims were filed in California state court in the first half of 2021. Adding to these decisions, in August, we saw the first decision on federal form provisions under New York law. In a case called Hook versus Casa Systems, 
a New York trial court dismissed claims under Sections 11 and 15 of the Securities Act because the defendant's corporate charter contained a federal form provision. The court held that the Internal Affairs Doctrine applied so that Delaware law governed the enforceability of the federal form provision, but it also reasoned that even under New York law, the outcome would be the same in federal form provisions are prima facie enforceable. This is particularly important since New York has historically been a prominent venue for state court litigation such as this. If other courts in New York follow suit, it is likely we'll see yet another constriction of state filings of Securities Act claims. At the same time, last year, there were two district court decisions in California which have enforced form selection clauses requiring derivative suits to be filed in Delaware State Court. These cases are notable because the district courts granted motions to dismiss shareholder derivative actions that allege violations of Section 14A of the Exchange Act, even though it confers exclusive jurisdiction on federal courts and contains an anti-waiver provision. In one shareholder derivative action, the district court suggested that a form selection clause in Facebook's Certificate of Incorporation might bar a Section 14 claim. In the other action involving the clothing retailer, The Gap, the district court referred to Ninth Circuit authority that the, quote, strong federal policy in favor of enforcing form selection clauses supersedes the anti-waiver provisions in state and federal statutes, close quote. And it dismissed the action and required the plaintiff to bring her claims in Delaware State Court. These two rulings contrast with decisions from other federal courts which have declined to enforce form selection clauses in a manner that would prevent Exchange Act claims from being brought in federal courts. It's interesting that we seem to have two different developments emerging. On the one hand, reduced filings of Securities Act claims in state court, and on the other hand, the enforcement of form selection clauses to require litigation of shareholder derivative claims in state court. The common element here is that courts, both state and federal, are recognizing the enforceability of form selection clauses or provisions in corporate instruments. So let's shift gears and move on to another interesting development, the First Circuit's decision last year in SEC versus Marone and its implications for private securities litigation involving foreign elements. In 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court held in Morrison versus Australia National Bank that Section 10B of the Exchange Act applies only to transactions in securities listed on domestic exchanges and domestic transactions in other securities. The second part of this test has been contentious federal circuit courts have elaborated on what exactly domestic transactions in other securities means. Joya, can you tell us about the significance of the First Circuit's recent decision in Moron? Of course, Steve. After the Supreme Court issued its decision in Morrison, the Second, Third, and Ninth Circuits held that a transaction involving a foreign security may still be subject to Section 10b liability if irrevocable liability is incurred or title passes within the United States. The Second Circuit has gone further and held that in order for Section 10b liability to apply to a transaction, irrevocable liability must have been incurred in the United States and not be so predominantly foreign so as to be impermissibly extraterritorial. The Ninth Circuit, on the other hand, requires only that there be irrevocable liability in the United States and does not require a second step to determine whether the transaction is predominantly foreign. Last May, the First Circuit followed the Ninth Circuit's approach. The case involved a Delaware corporation 
whose directors and officers solicited investments from foreign investors by working with a foreign consulting agency. The SEC alleged various Securities Act and Exchange Act violations, and the First Circuit held that irrevocable liability had occurred in the United States because the subscription agreements were countersigned in the United States. The First Circuit rejected the defendant's argument that even if irrevocable liability was incurred in the United States, the Morrison standard excludes predominantly foreign transactions. The First Circuit held that irrevocable liability in the United States is all that is required to satisfy the Morrison standard. The opinion in Moroni contributes to the tension between the Second and Ninth Circuits, and defendants should be aware of the different approaches to foreign transactions in different circuits in private securities litigation. Jeff and Julia, another recent appellate decision will be important in litigation involving plaintiffs who purchase securities through direct listings. In 2018, the SEC approved a proposed rule by the New York Stock Exchange permitting companies to go through a direct listing which does not require the issuance of any new shares. Instead, the company files a registration statement solely to permit pre-existing shares to be sold on the exchange, unless the shares are exempt from registration. This means that in a direct listing, both unregistered and registered shares may be sold to the public. This has raised some questions about whether a purchaser of unregistered shares in a direct listing has standing to bring Securities Act claims. For example, Section 11 of the Act provides a cause of action against issuers and underwriters for false statements in a registration statement made to, quote, any person acquiring such security. The issue is whether the wording of this section requires a security to be issued under a registration statement. That's right, Steve. In September, the Ninth Circuit held in Pirani versus Slack Technologies that purchasers of unregistered shares sold in a direct listing have standing to sue under sections 11 and 12 of the Securities Act. The majority held that both the registered and unregistered shares sold in a direct listing are considered sold upon a registration statement, which is sufficient as a basis for the plaintiff's standing. The circuit court reasoned that a contrary interpretation would eliminate liability for misleading or false statements made in a direct listing. The Ninth Circuit was the first circuit court to address this issue but I suggest it won't be the last word on this issue. There was a dissenting opinion by Judge Miller who argued that a textual reading of sections 11 and 12 would require the plaintiff to show that his or her shares were issued under the allegedly false or misleading registration statement. On November 3rd, the defendants petitioned for a panel rehearing or rehearing en banc supported by amici including the Cato Institute, SIFMA, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and the former SEC Commissioner, Joseph Grunfest, who's a professor at Stanford now. The plaintiffs filed a response on December 20, and the petition remains pending before the Ninth Circuit. While we await a ruling in Slack, Steve and Julia, let's turn to our final topic today, private securities litigation concerning ESG disclosures. As we saw last year, there was an uptick in shareholder derivative actions, and securities fraud suits relating to ESG-related commitments and disclosures. For example, there were a number of derivative suits filed in California federal courts alleging misrepresentations about corporate commitments to workforce and leadership diversity. What new developments have emerged regarding these types of suits, Julia? 
Jeff, several courts have now ruled on motions to dismiss in these ESG-related actions, holding that they were barred by the plaintiff's failure to adequately allege demand futility. That is, the plaintiffs did not meet the requirement to plead with particularity that a majority of the board of directors was conflicted from deciding to pursue the claims, and that demand on the board of directors was thus excused. For instance, in shareholder derivative actions involving the beverage company Monster, as well as technology companies AMD and Norton LifeLock, the plaintiffs alleged that these companies had failed to live up to their workforce diversity and inclusion policies. But various district courts in California dismissed the claims due to demand futility. In the Monster case, the court also suggested that because the law of Delaware, where the company was incorporated, did not impose any duty to maintain diversity on a board of directors, this undercut the plaintiff's argument that the directors were subject to substantial personal liability and thus conflicted from pursuing the claim. In other recent cases, courts have dismissed ESG-related complaints for failure to state a claim. In one shareholder derivative suit against Facebook, the plaintiff alleged breach of fiduciary duty and Section 14A claims, contending that Facebook's proxy statements contain misrepresentation about its commitment to building a diverse workforce and including individuals from diverse backgrounds at the board level. The district court dismissed these claims, holding that the challenge statements were non-actionable puffery or aspirational statements. These cases reinforce how courts adjudicating ESG-related suits will be required to interpret value-laden statements, and we have yet to see how other courts will approach corporate statements about diversity and inclusion. The risk of ESG-related securities and derivative litigation, along with regulatory action and shareholder proxy battles, will continue to grow. As this litigation becomes more prominent, it would be prudent for companies to comprehensively review their ESG-related strategy and disclosures, including in SEC filings and other public statements. So that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening to SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. For more in-depth discussion of today's topic, please take a look at our biannual securities enforcement and litigation update available on the Securities Litigation page of our website. Please also join Jeff, Julia, and me for our SNC Critical Insights on the priorities of the SEC's Enforcement Division and recent securities enforcement trends. Mm-hmm.